All right, well, I guess uh, it's time for us to get going. Uh, welcome. We're reaching closer to the end of our uh, our course, so I hope that it's been profitable thus far. Uh, tonight, we will be looking at Proverbs 3 and 4 and seeing how long how far into it we can get. There is another installment of notes that takes us, I think, to page 125. Uh, so if you have not picked up that, you'll want to do so. Uh, let me open in prayer, and then we'll we'll get going what we have for tonight. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have again to study your word, and I ask for wisdom, and I ask that we would have insight. pray that you'd help us to uh, be able to correlate the truth that we're learning from your word and apply it in a way that would help us to have insight and wisdom and understanding as we seek to navigate life. pray that you'd be honored and glorified, that Christ would be exalted. I thank you for this church and for the work you're doing uh, through this assembly of believers, and I pray that you continue to bless it and strengthen it for your glory and to bring honor to the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, I believe we're on page 84. If you have the notes, page 84, and we're picking up with chapter 3, verse 13. And in the notes, this is entitled Interlude Interlude 2. Uh, we might also call it Excursus 2. Uh, if you recall, as the pattern of the speeches unfold in the prologue, we have ten wisdom speeches in Proverbs 1 to 9, where the father is addressing the son. And then we have five interludes or excurses where Lady Wisdom primarily intervenes. And so this is one of those... Uh, interludes here in verses 13 to 20. Uh, so, really two questions that I want to ask about this interlude, and then we'll look at the text uh, in more detail. Number one is this. Who or what is wisdom in Proverbs 3? 13 to 20. Okay, who or what is wisdom? What I mean by that is, uh, we're going to discuss, is wisdom an abstract quality in this section, or is wisdom lady wisdom? How should we understand wisdom in this section? And then secondly, I want to ask this question, uh, why does wisdom use the metaphors that it or she does. Okay, I'm going to, as we look through this text, we're going to see primarily two things that she, two metaphors. One is royalty and the other is creation. Okay, we'll ask why does wisdom use these particular metaphors and what do we gain from her explanation? Okay, so let's look at the text. Uh, we're in chapter 3, verse 13. I'll read 13 to 20 and then we'll uh, make some observations. It begins, Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. 
By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge the watery depths were divided, and the clouds let drop the dew. All right, so if you recall, uh, we've been working our way through the prologue, and we've seen already several of the speeches uh, from the father to son. Uh, I think we've, let's see, we've gone through speech three, and then we have this second interlude. In the first interlude, if you remember that, Lady Wisdom uh, is crying out. She makes this speech. It's an impassioned plea to the young, simple-minded to come and get wisdom from her. And she really takes a very acerbic tone in that speech, if you remember from chapter 1, and says that if you fail to heed my counsel, do you remember what it says there, that uh, she will scoff when they fall into calamity. And so she's very forceful and somewhat confrontational to the young man, I think so as to get his attention. Then we have uh, another speech, two more speeches by the father, and then we have this interlude here. So we want to find out what is going on with this interlude. Why is, why is this section beginning with blessed are those? This seems to be a different type of saying than what we've seen so far. It's, uh, if, if you look at that first verse, blessed is the man. What sort of a uh, type of literature does that remind you of? Can you think of any other literatures that talk about blessed is someone in Matthew. Yeah. Okay. The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. That's right. why I don't understand why wisdom is always facing to her when it seems like it should be a him as like in Jesus. Right. And it's I, I don't understand why they would um, call wisdom her instead of him. Yeah. And we talked about that at all in this class a little bit, right? Is that something that you've thought about or wrestled with? Why is wisdom a female as opposed to a male figure. And uh, most would acknowledge that she is a, a literary character in the prologue. And the reason we say that is she talks and she seems to have characteristic features of a, of a literary character. So she's developed in the prologue as a character. So why is it female? Anybody have thoughts about that? Okay, more attractive, for one thing, to the young man. True. You said that it would be... Um, a young man would be attracted to a female. Right. And so when you're possessing all these good things, he would be attracted to her as opposed to the adulteress. Right, right. So she's sort of the model to which he's to aspire. Uh, a couple things. Number one, the word Hebrew is feminine. So uh, Hebrew has gender. Every word is, is gender-based. So wisdom itself is, is feminine. But also I think lady wisdom is sort of the idealized portrait of the type of young woman he's to be seeking. And I think she is embodied in chapter 31 as the the noble wife, the virtuous woman that he's to aspire to. So if he's made it all the way through the book of Proverbs and been trained adequately by learning the wisdom that's there, uh, it seems like the, the punchline in chapter 31 is that's the sort of woman that he'll be attracted to and desire to marry and not give himself to uh, Lady Folly and the adulterous woman that is seeking to attract his attention as he goes along this path. All right, so so we have this interlude, and, and you mentioned it. It sounds like a beatitude. So what's the point of inserting a beatitude right here in the middle of these speeches? 
why does the voice of wisdom seem to keep interrupting the speeches? In, in other words, if we were to lay out and organize this book, we might just simply have ten speeches, you know, in order. Once you get those speeches, you've got it and you can move on. But the Father seems to pause intermittently and allow Lady Wisdom to step to the mic and to say something to address the young man or something about wisdom. All right, so as you read through these verses, I I have several questions. Number one, what are your observations about the text? And then thinking in these two terms, should we consider wisdom here to be Lady Wisdom or is it just wisdom as an abstract quality? In other words, is he saying uh, those who find wisdom are blessed or is he saying those who find lady wisdom are blessed? And is there a distinction between the two? In other words, does would that mean that we apply it differently? And then number two, why does wisdom use these metaphors? Assuming that she's personified in some way, or at least as the father describes her, why do the two metaphors of royalty and creation seem to be so pertinent to what wisdom is doing. All right, so thoughts. Anyone have thoughts about any of those questions? Well, when we were, right before when she was talking about um, if you don't listen and you get yourself in a mess, I'm going to laugh. And then it was brought out that she can do that because she's kind of personifying God and his wisdom. So, I forgot what I was going to say. That's a good start, though. Okay, so if she's personifying God's wisdom, does that help us answer either of these questions? Well, it would seem to be that it was just wisdom rather than lady wisdom. Okay. All right. Anybody agree or disagree? Does it make a big difference, I guess? it's one or the other I'm not sure if it does Uh, I I tend to perhaps see this for consistency's sake to be more in favor of lady wisdom in the sense that interlude one has her speaking interlude two has a beatitude about those who find her uh, which would seem to keep that continuity I had asked earlier, why does the father pause every so often and allow Lady Wisdom to speak? They may have thoughts about why that might be. A clarification of the point that I said this and now I want you to truly understand the subliminal message behind it. Yeah, I think so. I think as a means of training... Uh, it's often helpful uh, to sort of take a, a pause in your methodology and allow someone else's voice to speak. And so wisdom comes in and complements what the father is already saying. I see this a lot with my own kids, for instance. I'll say something what seems like a hundred times, and it doesn't really make an impact. And then some other adult in their life will say the exact same thing, and suddenly, yeah. We need to do this. Uh, So it seems like maybe the father is using wisdom as a supplementary voice to augment what he's saying and coming at it from uh, in the sense of something that would be more attractive to the young man. Uh, The young man might get 
you know, sort of take the father's wisdom for granted. So Lady Wisdom steps in and she complements what the father is saying with her perspective. Okay, so why why a beatitude? Um, really, a beatitude is rooted in wisdom. So when Jesus uses the Beatitudes in Matthew, he's really using a wisdom form. Uh, so what, can anybody tell me what's the purpose of a, of a Beatitude or a blessing? What, what does it, what is it, how should we read it or interpret it? What is it intended to convey? Any ideas? One thing I think that they say is to think about, consider it. Okay. Not just pass over. <coughs> Take time to stop and think about it. Okay. All right. Yes. It implies God's reward for obedience. Okay. Yeah, God's reward. So the blessing, the idea of blessing goes back to salvation, right? When uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham, he promises to bless the nations through Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. So blessing... Uh, is rooted in this idea of salvation and shalom, a Hebrew word which means peace or well-being, wholeness. So the idea is wisdom provides a superior path so that the young man, the, the aspiring sage, can find shalom, salvation, rest. Uh, we use the word happiness sometimes, how happy uh, that I think in our 21st century America sometimes is taken the wrong way as simply personal fulfillment. Uh, there's a billion dollar happiness industry, right, that churns out books about happiness. I just uh, got a book from the library called uh, This is Where You Belong, The Art and Science of Loving the Place Where You Live. And it's in this genre, of, it's, it calls itself a happiness industry book. So it's, in other words, uh, a way to help you find happiness. Well, that's not really what the Bible is necessarily saying to give you a buzz, but it is offering <clears throat> God's peace that surpasses our <clears throat> ordinary circumstances. It's God's shalom, the blessing of salvation. All right. Let's ask the second question. Why does wisdom use the metaphors of royalty and creation? What does she gain by using those? If you look at uh, beginning of verse 15, she's talking about she is more precious than rubies. And then verse 16, long life, riches, and honor. Uh, we'll see in a moment that these are symbols of royalty. And then she talks about creation. Uh, verse 18, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Uh, the only place in the Bible where the tree of life is mentioned outside of Genesis and uh, allusions to it in Revelation and Ezekiel is in Proverbs. Proverbs mentions it several times. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what that means. So, so wisdom is always seeming to refer back to creation. And this will really hit its apex in chapter 8 where she has this lengthy poem 22 to 30 about how she was present at the beginning at creation okay so royalty and creation are two common themes in the wisdom portions so why would this be helpful to the young sage well i think that um it's all on contrast lady wisdom lady folly and then royalty and poverty 
creation and no foundation. You know, he's talking about the godly foundation, and a fool rejects that foundation. Right. And he's showing that real royalty, real riches, are not what this fool is seeking after to try to make a fast buck or right. <clears throat> okay. Exactly. So uh, we've I've sort of made a marginal case. Maybe, maybe it's been clearer than I realized, but that the uh, addressee of Proverbs is probably someone who's in the royal court who is aspiring to be a socio-political leader in Israel, perhaps even the king, if it's Solomon here talking to Rehoboam. So the metaphors of royalty, of course, are going to be attractive because the young man wants to live a life that is successful and that is uh, earmarked with the trades of, of royalty, the trademarks of royalty. Uh, but also creation becomes very important. Why would creation be an important part of wisdom? I think the main point is this. If the young man is to have a successful, wise life, he has to do so by patterning his life after the divinely instilled order within creation. In other words, uh, he can't live cross-grain to God's creational purposes. So a, a young person who's learning wisdom needs to understand the design God has instilled in creation so that he patterns his life after the order of God's creation rather than at odds with God's order and design. Does that make sense? In other words, if we are seeking to live at cross purposes with how God has designed and ordered the world, it will lead to frustration, death, sin, all of these things. It it leads to the dissolution of society. We see this in the fabric of our own culture, and most people don't realize that they're they're living at cross purposes with God's creational design and it's leading to frustration and disillusion and brokenness and all of these things. And so the sage is saying for the young man, he has to understand if we look at creation and we are discerning, we'll see the pattern that God has instilled within the order of the cosmos. And if we see that order and design and we live our lives uh, in the, the trajectory of that design, we will find fulfillment, peace, salvation in God's order. If we're at cross purposes with that, it will lead to frustration, folly, and all those things that will negate wisdom. So the young man should aspire to royalty and be living his life according to the order of God's design. So I think those are reasons why uh, wisdom keeps referring back to those metaphors. Okay, I don't want to squelch any other feedback or thoughts that you had, so as you look at these verses... Is there anything else that sticks out to you by way of observation that you see uh, within these verses? Yes? It seems like uh, 19 and 20 are more literal than the metaphors. Uh, I mean, the way I read it is just him saying that God used these things for creation. Right. So, yes, it's, it's certainly referring back to the beginning of creation and looking at how God laid these foundations. And I think it's also setting a paradigm for uh, understanding creation. Uh, Whenever we... Well, I don't want to get off track too much. An interesting study that that I've thought a lot about is looking at how uh, when Israel builds the tabernacle and the temple, uh, they use the same terminology that is used in creation. And there's a deliberate echoing there. In other words, what I think it's saying is uh, God was a master craftsman building creation. 
and he built creation in such a way that man might have a relationship with him and be a king priest within the creational mandate in Genesis. And so, but we fell into sin, and so that was disrupted. But creation is a, a I want to, I'm trying not to use two fancy words, but a rubric or a pattern for how all of life should follow. That makes sense. How God created the world is a pattern for how we should live and govern our lives. And, you know, scientists originally understood this. Most of the early scientists were Christians who understood that uh, because there is order latent in creation, we can discern that pattern and therefore we can make scientific experiments that will follow. Uh, Even an atheist scientist has to have as a presupposition the law of uniformity, that things will recur according to a pattern. What they don't realize is really the only way you could say that is because someone has instilled that pattern in design. Uh, You know, I'm reading a book about intelligent design and makes some interesting points, and he draws allusions to forensic science. If you think about a crime scene, if you ever watched a documentary, uh, there were a bunch that came out recently because of the anniversary of the Jean Bonnet Ramsey murder. And if you walk through what they do, a forensic scientist is looking at the evidence and trying to establish a pattern, right? Seeing a design. And he says that's essentially what we do in science, but atheist scientists are trying to cut off the pattern and the design. They're not saying there's a creator or a, a design latent in creation itself. And so he says we need to do that if we're really to make headway with science, and I think he's right. All right, anyway, all that to say, I I agree. I think 19 and 20, he's looking back at what God actually did. So I'm not saying a metaphor. It's a metaphor in the sense that it's figurative, uh, but he's drawing principles from that. Okay, good observation. Any other thoughts? All right. Okay. Uh, just a few things here to point out. I have some translational things. Uh, I think the word rubies here should probably be translated pearls. Uh, you can read through that and see. Um, let me go to page 85, the theological and exegetical considerations. All right. Uh, in the middle of that page there, I think you guys are all on the same page as me. I start that paragraph that Murphy designates Proverbs three thirteen to twenty as a ham of wisdom, extolling the glories of finding her or, or it. Uh, so if you look at verses thirteen, uh, it starts with blessed, and notice how verse eighteen ends with blessed. So this kind of forms a frame around thirteen to eighteen in particular, and we might say that this is a hymn extolling the blessings of those who find wisdom. Uh, so those who, who do so are uh, those that are truly blessed. In that next paragraph, uh, verse 16, I want to talk a little bit about this. I mentioned that the uh, metaphor of royalty is used here. Uh, notice that she talks about length of days, wealth, and honor. Uh, if you read through this paragraph, I note here that Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8 also mentions these qualities again. Verse 18, with me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. And then King David in 1 Chronicles 29, 28 is described this way. Then he died at a good age, full of days, riches, and honor. So it's these same, it's a triad, long life, wealth, and honor. 
additionally, when Solomon asks the Lord to grant him wisdom in the dream experience at Gibeon, the Lord responds favorably by promising Solomon not only a wise and discerning heart, but also wealth and honor and long life. Uh, so these, this triad of features keeps coming up, and this is why I would connect it to royalty, long life, riches, and honor. In fact, I have some interesting observations here from uh, a journal article that is suggesting this interlude is based off Solomon's dream experience. So if you look at the bottom of the page here, these are words that occur in both Proverbs 3 and the story of 1 Kings 3. You have the word wealth. Uh, Next page, honor, length of days, wisdom, and understanding. So there are some interesting connections here. Uh, I think this at least suggests that uh, Lady Wisdom is offering the blessings of royalty to the young man if he pursues her rather than follow, follows the path toward folly. All right, and then on the next page, on page 86, I have a section there about the tree of life. And again, this is only mentioned uh, in wisdom literature and Proverbs and then in creation or eschatology. Uh, in the middle of the paragraph there, I have a quote from Victor Hurwitz. Uh, Just food for thought here. He says this, The wisdom school teaches, therefore, that the way out of paradise is both ironically and logically also the way in. The wisdom that man acquired sinfully through acts of disobedience and that led him to greed, dispossessing him of his primal ideal realm, can, if found and extracted through the legitimate means of education, obeying parents and teachers and learning from life experience, restore the blessings of paradise. Uh, So, all that to say, I think uh, Lady Wisdom offers something unique here, that if you pursue her, there's this opportunity to return to the original design for which God made us. It's not that we can reverse the fall completely, uh, because only Christ can do that. But we are, uh, by pursuing wisdom recalibrated back to God's intent and design for us in a way that helps us to flourish. People talk a lot about human flourishing. How do we get people to flourish? And many people point to science or education or all these things. And wisdom is saying, if you pursue me, that is wisdom, you will achieve human flourishing as God designed, as as we were originally created to be. And so I think uh, that's that's important. All right, let me go to page uh, 87. I just want to end with uh, the last paragraph that I have there. So I asked this question, second to last paragraph, what is the larger significance of this stanza's creation theology? That last paragraph, I try to answer that. The aspiring sage is implicitly called to enter God's creative and orderly work with him, to, to do God's work after him, so to speak. As the Lord, Yahweh, creates, created and sustains the inhabitable world, the wise God-fearer must also recognize, first, God's hand in bringing the world into existence, and must work, second, in concordance with Yahweh to cultivate and sustain elements critical to well-ordered, flourishing life. In so doing, the wise man has replicated within the finite cosmos the infinite wisdom of the Creator. In other words, we're looking to discern the patterns God has created and latently placed in creation so that we can uh, live a wise life. If we can discern the pattern and order our lives according to the pattern, uh, wisdom tells us we will succeed. 
Okay, does that make sense? So this is creation theology. It's one of the key uh, motifs of wisdom literature, creation theology, and so it's very important to uh, Lady Wisdom in this context. All right, any thoughts or questions about that? Okay, let's go to page 88 then. We'll continue with the next speech. So Proverbs 3, verse 21. Uh, We're now going to get into speech 4. And this is a call to remember. So you remember there are three basic types of speeches, calls to attention, and secondly, calls to remember. The third type are warnings against the the, uh, outside woman. All right, so here's a call to remember, and I've subtitled this, The Seven Commandments of the Wise Young Man. So as we read through this, note how uh, frequently we have imperatives here. So he's he's a little more forcefully now giving commands to the young man about what he's not to do. All right, so you can follow as I read. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked. For the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse anyone for no reason when they have done you no harm. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. For the Lord detests the perverse, but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. The wise inherit honor, but fools get only shame. All right, so let's talk a little bit about this section this is the next wisdom speech number four and uh how would you characterize this speech uh, any any observations or thoughts about uh the language here he's going from a beatitude the blessing of wisdom to now what seems to be a, a more immediate and uh do not prohibition uh thread that runs through this particular speech. Any any observations about what you see? I don't want to do all the talking. He's warning. He's, he's warning about avoiding man's weaknesses. Right. Because these are the things that we do when we're unsafe. Yeah. Okay. So so he's, we could say, more forceful here. But it's interesting, as I've wrestled with this particular speech, uh, it seems like most of the imperatives here are negative imperatives, right? Do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. So why, at this point, is he doing, is he saying this? Remember, in speech two, there were no imperatives at all. And then speech three, uh, it was, he had a few, do not be wise in your own eyes, uh, and, and other things, but 
it was basically to trust in the Lord, to not get discouraged was kind of the idea. So remember we were saying that at that point in the wisdom uh, pursuit, he might grow discouraged and he might begin to think, is it really worth it to pursue wisdom? Particularly when all my peers seem to be having a really good time and they're not pursuing wisdom. Why should I put forth the effort to, to follow this when it's difficult? Then we have this beatitude that wisdom is attractive. He should pursue her to gain blessing. And now we have a little bit more of a confrontational, maybe that's too strong of a word, but a a very uh, sober warning from the father of what the son must not do. Uh, Any ideas why the, the shift here in the tone or thoughts about that? You're going from general to specific. Okay. Right, so he is getting very specific here. He's giving specific examples, right, about uh, how you how you behave, uh, and, and how how would you characterize it? And in other words, if we look closely, what is he warning against? Is there a common uh, word or a common um, group of people that he's warning against? Well, his warning begins to be unsaved. Okay. Because these are all the things that take you away from truly finding happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, you might, I would love to have a sports car you know, and convert red, right. specifically. <laughs> yeah. But will it cause me happiness? Absolutely. For a week or two weeks, maybe even two or three months. Mm-hmm. But it. But those are the things of the world, and will it cost me happiness a year from now? No, probably not. Only by going towards God do you really find the peace of life, the joy of life, the foundation that keeps us where we need to be. Right. Okay. Boy, did I get verbose. He's he's warning against himself. It's his own own thoughts. Don't let your eyes wander. Don't be afraid. Okay. It's things that he would think himself. Okay. So he's, it's a, a life of self-restraint, in other words, to not give in to that. Look. It seems like it's the quite opposite of wisdom, which he's been talking about. Most of them seem to be very unreasonable things to do. Like, you know, uh, don't say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you. I already have it with you. Just things that are just opposite of what would be wise to do. Okay. Okay. Right. After explaining what wisdom is. Right. That leads to another observation, and it begins to be interrelational. Begins to have to do with our dealings with other people. Yeah. Rather than just our dealing with ourselves. Right. So self-restraint is an important theme, but I think uh, you're correct. As I read through this, uh, notice how often he's he's talking here about social relationships or about uh, how he behaves in the context of society, right? So he's he's been already been told in speech one, uh, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Don't follow their path. He's warning against gang violence. And then in, in chapter two, it's a much more gentle tone. Uh, it's no imperatives, but, you know, if you do this, you will receive blessing. Uh, Lady Wisdom jumps in. She's somewhat confrontational. Then speech uh, three, 
Uh, it's an encouragement if he's getting discouraged. And now here he seems to be dealing with uh, how the young man behaves toward society. Notice how often he uses the word, well, uh, notice how often he talks about others. If you look at verse 28, your neighbor. Verse 29, your neighbor. Uh, verse 30, anyone. 31, the violent. Okay, um, so he seems to be particularly warning against doing things which will jeopardize uh, a good harmonious order within society. Remember one of the three uh, that he's to pursue in Proverbs 1 6. Do you remember that? Uh, if we turn back there quickly to look at that, um, actually it's Proverbs 1 3. Uh, when the young man does what is right and he gains wisdom, he'll get insight into, as the NAV says, doing what is right and just and fair or equitable might be a better translation of that third word. So it's concerned with social justice, particularly if this is a sociopolitical, future sociopolitical leader. Uh, social justice is an important thing. So the young man is to set an example by not being someone who subverts a well-ordered, harmonious society, but someone who augments it. Does that make sense? In other words, he's contributing to the welfare of his immediate society rather than contributing to the downfall of it. Think about the communities that we live in here in 21st century America. How many Americans now, I would say, uh, detract from society and how many contribute to it. It seems, and this is a, I guess, somewhat an anecdotal observation, it seems that in earlier periods of American history there were more civically minded people who were contributing to the well-being of society vis-a-vis -vis trying to drain society of its resources. That is the feeling that I get as I look at America in general today. So the young man is encouraged here to be, I think, contributing toward the well-being of society by not giving in to behavior that would subvert it. Thought. You're I'm talking about royalty or in preparation for royalty, and it seems like you hear a lot in politics uh, the idea of backstabbing, throwing people under the bus, uh, so on and so forth like that, and what this is doing, it seems like, is is preaching against that. Of of you know, I I just looked at don't plant harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. You know, don't don't be don't be out there trying to get people. Don't don't be you know right. always trying to plot and scheme of ways you can put somebody down. Right. And and. I mean, to us, I think generally we don't, but that is a that is a big thing in the world. Yes. As far as getting ahead, doing whatever you have to do to backstab and, and taking or pleasure in backstabbing. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it would seem it would seem that that's the case, and I don't think I'm alone in saying that. As I observe people in general, it seems like many people delight in reckless behavior that that is harmful toward others rather than building up others. And part of that is if you don't restrain yourself, you will do harm to society. Uh, if you notice even how people drive, if they don't show some restraint, they're a danger, they're a risk to themselves and to others. Uh, and so 
I think there's something to this that we don't, as, a, as an American society in general, perhaps, I think, invest enough time because we're so pluralistic. Uh, but there is something to be said here that he's warning against things that will deteriorate the well-being of society. So he's to keep himself in check by doing things which are beneficial. Now, why does he, why does he frame it? In with negative prohibitions. See, that's the other thing that I think about here. Couldn't he say, for instance, in verse 21, keep your eyes on these rather than do not let your eyes wander. Verse 25, uh, do not be afraid. Okay. Uh, verse 27, do not withhold good. Couldn't he have said, give good or do good? Uh, in other words, it's, it's being framed here as negative prohibitions. Is there a point to why it's said that way seven times he gives a negative prohibition within this passage is that significant well to me and i can only speak for myself but you know it's um as a guy i lose track of where i'm at and things and so i I need it told to me in different ways kind of saying because yeah i'm already bored with the other part now i'm on to something else now i'm on to something else don't hold me don't do this just I need something different. Right. Right. And, you know, I don't know if that's it, but to me, that's what I would take it as. Yeah, I think pedagogically, if we could use that word. In other words, in in the way he trains the young man, he's spicing it up at times by bringing in lady wisdom and by sometimes saying, okay, you didn't get it this way. How about I get it in your face and say it this way? And then, you know, it's more of a negative prohibition, uh, and maybe that makes dramatic impact. Okay, other thoughts? Would it also... Because he knows we have a propensity to sin, so it's mm-hmm. giving a warning. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think, and I'll just say it this way: when we're young and learning, we often our first experiences of life are usually about what we're not to do. Right? Not sticking your finger in the light socket, not touching the stove when it's hot, not running out into the street after your ball. So the young man in his training. I think first needs to be told what not to do in terms of negative prohibition. So that's an important primary principle. And I think the point there also is that he's giving some concrete negative examples. A lot of times, I mean, just the way the news is, if you're just telling good stuff, it just kind of floats over people's heads. But when, when you give them the negative aspect, it seems to catch right. more. Right. Right. And, and many commands in scripture are are framed that way you shall not right you shall not do things i remember when i was in college i worked one summer as a camp counselor at a county camp so this was like a secular day camp and they drilled into us that we could never prohibit from the kids by telling them no we always had to frame it as a positive in other words you don't say don't run you say walk right and and I can understand what they were trying to do, but ultimately that just breaks down because at some point you have to say no uh, because as young people will continue to take what you give them if you continue to concede turf to them. Uh, so the young man here is first told what not to do before he gains the more complex wisdom of how to frame it. Right, any other thoughts? Yeah. I'm going to answer because I think the natural propensity is towards selfish behavior. Yeah. And so our first inclination is towards selfishness. And so he's saying, don't be neglectful of your neighbor or uh, not meeting your neighbor's need. Because I know that's what your initial inclination is going to be. So don't do that. Instead, do this. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's that's true. 
uh, there is a propensity. We, if you have kids, I, I'm probably speaking to the choir, you, you understand that, how that works within the context of, of a family unit. So, good. Another thought. Yeah. Yes. I think of my mother teaching my family, my, us as we were kids growing up. She could say, be good, but then if she zeroed in on don't spill anything, don't be interrupting, don't do this, you knew exactly what you weren't supposed to do, right. as opposed to a general yeah. be good. Exactly. That's true. Yes, and I found that in my own parenting that I try to generalize, assuming sometimes that my children are more mature than they are, I guess. And so uh, I'll say something like, you know, I expect you to have good behavior when we do this. And then we get home and I have to debrief and say, okay, you did this, this, and this, and you shouldn't have done those things. So, uh, so yeah, it is necessary to be specific, and that is helpful. All right, any other thoughts on observations on these? Okay. This is an interesting section. I have a section here below it where I have the seven prohibitions in bold uh, because the NIV, I think, obscures it a little bit, but there, are, it is seven imperatives in Hebrew that are negative imperatives. Uh, so these seven commands. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this. If you go to the next page on page 89, there are some interesting, I think, connections between this section and Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is uh, really the hinge of the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus 19, it's uh, many consider the theological center of the book. And it deals with social behavior that uh, is necessary for a well-ordered society. And what's interesting about Leviticus 19, as I've read through that and, and wrestled through it, is many of the commands in there pertain to how you should treat others who are either less fortunate or have no power to reciprocate if you wrong them. In other words, uh, if you're a well-to-do Israelite who's powerful, prestigious, think of Boaz and, and his position in society, if you uh, trample on the rights of the poor and the marginalized, they often have no recourse for coming after you. Right? We see this in our society today. Even one of our presidential nominees has been known for establishing a reputation as, you know, tough on people in this sort of a way. So Leviticus 19 is saying you need to exhibit grace and kindness even to people who cannot repay you. So if you notice, I have a little excerpt here in the middle of that page. He says, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf. Isn't that a funny one? How would the deaf know that you cursed him? Or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. In other words, I think there's, there's an idea here that the law has an inward dimension. In other words, it's not just doing the absolute minimum, but it's having a heart that is kind and gracious towards your neighbor. Fear your God, he says, I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Well, how would, how would they know that? In other words, that's an inward dimension of the law. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
So Leviticus 19 is here talking about, I think, the inward dimension of the law that dictates your social relationships so that you show justice and kindness and grace towards your neighbor. And I think that's what the sage here is getting the young man to think about. How can he do that in a more immediate sense? Uh, So he's to heed the Torah by following uh, these sorts of commands. All right. Uh, On the bottom there, I note that Longman observes that the positive admonition of this poem revolves around the twin terms sound wisdom and discretion. Uh, By warning the son, next page, against letting these qualities slip from his sight, the father is reminding him that wisdom is not a quality that can be easily attained and then forgotten. So he offers both positive encouragement and, I think, negative uh, prohibitions as well. All right, then one other observation here. Uh, Habel has noted that there's a merging of the responsibilities of wisdom and Yahweh in this passage. Yahweh assumes the role of wisdom in protecting the prospective sage. Okay, so for instance, verse 23, if you gain wisdom, verse 23 says, then you will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. This reminds me of, uh, I think it's Psalm 121, the idea of your, your foot will not stumble, the idea that the Lord will protect your going out and your coming in. So the point Habel is making here is wisdom was offering protection earlier, and now it's the Lord who is giving protection. And so wisdom and the Lord are working hand in hand. Particularly this comes out in verse 26, for instance. The Lord will be your confidence. He will keep your foot from being snared. So do you see what he's saying there? That as the young man is seeking wisdom, he's also gaining the protection of the Lord. So wisdom and the Lord are in a subtle sort of way being joined already that wisdom protects and ultimately it's the Lord who protects. So the young man uh, can take refuge in the Lord himself. To embrace wisdom is to embrace the Lord. All right. Any other thoughts? Okay, let's go to the next one then. Chapter four. Uh, This is speech five, page 91 of your notes. Hopefully we're all on the same page here. Okay, speech five. This is a call to attention. So we just had a call to remember. Now we have a call to attention in case uh, the young man has gotten distracted or is dozing off or is looking out the window. Uh, His attention is now to once again be drawn in. So I'll read these nine verses you can follow as I read. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me, and he said to me, Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. That's a kind of a connection back to what we just saw. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. All right. I've subtitled this section, The Satisfaction of Wisdom is Well-Founded in Tradition. Uh, What observations do you make here about the sage's 
advice or counsel in this particular section. He uh, appeals to something unique here in verse 3, reaching back to his own father. I think that's an important part component for this section, but also he spends a lot of uh, these verses extolling the virtues of wisdom again, that she will protect you if you love her. Again, encouraging the young man to pursue wisdom. All right, any ob- observations about this text as you've read through it? Thoughts? Yes? Well, it, it seems like um, if you were talking to someone that was a lot younger than you were, the the tendency, at least nowadays, seems to be, well, things are different now. Um, you don't understand. But here he's saying, I was your age, and this is what my father taught me, and this is really valuable, so I just want to emphasize to you that I'm not just trying to waste your time. Right. Right. And that's, isn't that a perennial uh, conflict in in a certain sense of the younger generation flouting the wisdom of the older generation? And uh, there's a saying in scripture, you know, there is a generation that is wise in their own eyes. I think you could almost say that about every generation that comes up is wise in their own eyes until... Life beats it out of them, but then even then, they don't always gain wisdom, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I I think there are a lot of older people who are still set in their folly. That's sad to see. All right, any other observations about this? When he says, son son to my father, he's referring to David. Yeah. Yep. And I, I think here, I'll make the case, I might as well make the case now, that there are possibly four generations in view here. Notice how he begins the verse 1. He says, listen, my sons. I've typically read this as it's not just the immediate son, if we consider that to be Rehoboam, but it's in a pluralized sort of all the sons that Solomon has. But Ansbury has made the point, and maybe he's right, that sons here could also have the idea of sons in a linear fashion. In other words, son, grandson, great-grandson, and so forth. And if that's the case, we have David training Solomon, Solomon training Rehoboam, and then looking forward even beyond that to his son. So uh, up to four generations here uh, being trained. Okay. Any other observations? All right, his immediate imperatives here get wisdom, get understanding, he seems to keep repeating this, right? So you see this in verse 5, get wisdom, get understanding. He says this again in verse 7, get wisdom, get understanding. Okay, so he's gone back to the positive commands. They were negative prohibitions in the last speech, now they're positive commands. And they're a little more generalized, but they're focused on wisdom, to pursue wisdom no matter what the cost. So he seems to be motivating the young man again to not give up, to realize the worth of wisdom to keep pursuing it. So that's an important uh, feature that he's supposed to follow wisdom. All right. This, this reminds me of raising a child. When, you, when you're raising your child, you say, pick up your socks, and they pick up their socks. And once they learn to pick up their socks, then you say, put your toys away. 
and they put their toys away. If you started with keep your room clean, that would not that would be so broad that they would not understand. And and this is kind of like that, where God has talked us into picking up our socks. Now we're going to put our toys away. Next, we're going to have to make our bed. (laughs) And and then ultimately you get to the point where you can say, keep your room clean, and we've learned enough along the path of life to keep our room clean. And and this is how, how I see God as teaching us to seek wisdom. You know, right. Do this, do yeah, do this little thing, yeah. and I'll do this more broad thing. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a progression there. Unfortunately, it seems like when they hit the teenage years, they forget that progression, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we sort of just put caution tape over the door and try to stay out of the room. But anyway, but yeah, I think you're right. There is a progression here that, that seems to be the case. You had a thought, too? I, knowing this is real moment, I just, I, I think of the the devastating power of the adamic nature is that that Rehoboam just <clears throat> threw it all away he and did. listened to the listened to the fellow kids mm-hmm. and watched the kingdom. Right, right. And I'll talk about this. So I have two minutes left, so let me buzz as quick as I can. Two things. Number one, bottom of the page here, this get wisdom, get understanding, just to stimulate some thought, there are some uh, interesting and intriguing parallels to the book of Ruth and how Boaz courts Ruth. He, in the same words of acquire, embrace, and all these sorts of things. Uh, now, well, the only reason for pointing this out is that I think the young man is to pursue wisdom sort of as you would pursue a potential marriage partner in the sense that you're pursuing her. Uh, when a young man sets his eyes on a girl and he's serious about it, he'll do whatever it takes, right, to attract her attention. So that's what the young man is to do. Now, to speak to the point that was just made, if you go to the next page, page 92, uh, here's the irony of it. As I try to explain, in the narrative world line behind this section, Solomon is passing wisdom down to his sons and grandsons, Rehoboam, from the father, David. Uh, Coptic calls this the most detailed description of wisdom instruction in the book of Proverbs. Uh, However, uh, sadly, in the next sentence I say, notably, the eventual historical outcome of this wisdom transmission portends the limitations and shortcomings of human sapience. Think about this. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, turns out to be foolish. The chronicler notes that Rehoboam's own strategies were disastrous, prompting Jeroboam's coup. Remember it says in 2 Chronicles 13, uh, Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his lord, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. That's verse uh, 2 Chronicles 13. What's really interesting about this is the use of the term irresolute here in the ESV is better translated tender. It's the Hebrew word rack. And this is the same word that's used in this context in verse uh, 7 of that passage. Uh, It's the same term Solomon uses here to describe himself in verse 3. When he says, I was young and tender... The chronicler says Rehoboam was tender and he became foolish is the implication. 
So the implication is while Solomon successfully inculcated wisdom when he was young and tender, Rehoboam did not, leading to an abject miscarriage of policy that resulted in the divided kingdom. Okay, so in other words, there's a literary echo here that Chronicles says Rehoboam was irresolute and so therefore he gave in to peer pressure and Solomon is saying, when I was irresolute, my father trained me and I pursued wisdom and it shows the limitations because Rehoboam didn't. Now, does this... When we think about this, does this mean we should just throw away everything in the book of Proverbs because it obviously didn't work with Rehoboam? Okay. No, it does not mean that. We should not grow discouraged. What it does show is that humans will always fall short of the glory of God. Right? There is no human sage that is the embodiment of wisdom except for one person, Jesus Christ. He's the only one. So Solomon fell short, Rehoboam fell short. It gives us hope because Christ is the consummation of wisdom, and it also encourages us, us to not give up but to keep pursuing it. Okay, our time's up, so thank you for your good attention tonight, and we'll look forward to seeing you Lord willing, next week.